Have you had your soup today? And the cold, crisp taste of Coke is so satisfying, it keeps me from eating something else that might really add those pounds. Like, like homicide? <laughs> like, no, we've gone too far. Someone stop her. <laughs> it's like that meme, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like meme language. It's, I mean, is it now that we've gone too far now? <laughs> this is too far. I think we've been, we've been outside. We crossed the line, we crossed the line already. Episode one. <laughs> Went too far with it. Um, oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> my name's Summer, and I'm here with my beautiful co-host, Joy. And Joy, I want you to know that if you were ever framed for murder, I would quit my job, because I'd lose it, and dedicate my <laughs> life to finding the truth and bringing the perpetrator to justice and also to clearing your name. And you're welcome. Oh, thank you. And I'd visit you in jail. <laughs> oh, dang. <laughs> well, I'm glad I'd have one visitor. Yeah. Isn't oh. it just a shame that like the guilty and the innocent person both are going to be like, no, I didn't do it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Isn't that just. It's just like what we were talking about at the end of our last episode. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope that doesn't happen because I feel like it would be really bad. It would be. It would be you terrible. know, when you watch like a wrongly accused or convicted documentary or something uh-huh. you're just so frustrated the whole time yeah and i don't know yes. i just feel like it's awful yes and i hope to never know exactly i can sympathize with it but i hope to not empathize with it yes anyway you're right i yeah, am joy you are joy and i'm here with my beautiful co-host summer and i didn't write a compliment <laughs> But I have one. Oh. Because earlier when you came in the room, I thought this to myself. So I'm just going to say it. Okay. I really like your cute little bun right now. <laughs> the one in my hair. Yes. Okay. She has this, her hair pulled up into this little, like, tiny, messy bun. It's and because. It's really cute. It's because when I went into the bathroom before we started recording and I saw my hair, which is now 12 hours old and just like <laughs> 12 hours old. It's lo- it's losing life. You know, right. I was just like, Oh no. <laughs> I just like took it and threw it up. Well, when you walked in, I was like, Oh, that hair is cute. <laughs> so your hair looks very cute. My husband always tells me he likes my hair up. Yeah. And I get that too. I do that. I do that. Um, that horrible thing where I'm like, that's just cause you hate my hair. You know, that thing. See, I, <laughs> that horrible girl thing. I never thing. put my hair up for reasons that I don't want to talk about. <laughs> right. But yeah. Um, but whenever I have my hair up, people are like, you look oh, really nice. nice. Yeah. So I think all that to say, Thanks. it's pretty accurate that um, we have a worse view of yeah. ourselves. We than don't other see ourselves do. the way other people see right. us. Yeah. That's just the truth. Yep. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so I'm really excited about this. Mm-hmm. I'm really nervous because I want to do it well. You will. This is actually really important to me. You will. So just so you guys know, as a side note, like why do Joy and I take time out to talk about stories? Well, I don't really think it is a time out. No. I think that stories are really important. I think that um, Jesus used stories to tell people about the world. And I think that we are called the people of the book. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because stories are very important. True stories. I think I think fiction has its place in the world. But Joy and I just love stories. We love people who are storytellers. Most of the podcasts that we listen to um, are just people telling stories. Right. Sometimes true stories, sometimes not. Yep. Sometimes they gathered information from people who investigated the story and sometimes they themselves investigated the story. Figured it out or whatever the ending is. Yes. And so I'm going to tell you guys today a story about a man. And this story has just captured me since I first read about it. And I want to say 2009-ish. I can't remember exactly. But I read this story. It was in The New Yorker. And ever since then, I've just been following it If anything pops up on it, I'm on it. I want to know about it. Um, And it is a crazy, heartbreaking story that I think just teaches us a lot. (laughs) Um, And it is an unsolved mystery. And so I I was like, Joy, let's tell, like, let's talk about our unsolved mysteries that just, like, get us, that just capture us. And so for me, this is the one. This, This is the story that made me interested in investigative journalism and true crime and all of those things. And these kinds of story, like my whole life I was into fiction and this was kind of like my turning point of when nonfiction really started to grab me. All right. So anyway, um, it is an unsolved mystery, but a man was put to death for this crime. Mm. So I'm going to tell you guys, about a man named Cameron Todd Willingham. And um, so in the early 90s, his 11-year-old neighbor, Buffy, (laughs) this is in Northeast Texas in a city called Corsicana. Um, His 11-year-old neighbor, Buffy, lived two houses down. She was playing in her backyard and she saw smoke coming out of Cameron's house. So she ran inside and got her mom they ran up the street, and that's when they saw that uh, Cameron Willingham and his family's house was on fire. Cameron was standing on the front porch wearing just a pair of jeans. He was covered in soot. He was singed, and he was screaming, my babies, my babies, my babies. His children, Carmen and Cameron, who were one-year-old twin girls, and his two-year-old Amber were trapped inside. So Cameron told, I know. It's terrible. Um, Cameron yelled at the Barbies to call the fire department. And so they ran. They, they ran back to the house to call 911. And while they were doing that, they saw that he had taken a stick and he broke the children's bedroom window in to try to get inside. Um, but fire just immediately like came, came out, pouring came out. pouring out. Um, flames came through it. And he couldn't get back inside. And a neighbor later told the police that he just kept crying, my babies. Um, And then it seemed like he was just like shocked into silence. So 
Diane Barbie, the neighbor, once she came back, um, she was like halfway down the street and she could feel the heat radiating off of the house. And then all of the windows blew out. Like that's how hot. Oh my God. That's how hot it was. Um, within minutes, the firemen arrived and Cameron went up to them shouting that his children were inside um, where the flames were the thickest and a fireman, you know, he told, he like over the radio was like, you guys need to hurry up, like get here, get here, get here. More people showed up. They were uncoiling the hoses, aiming water at the house. One fireman, um, he had an air tank and he had a mask and he, um, he tried to go through a window, but then one of the water hoses hit him and he couldn't get in. He, then he went through the front door um, he reached the kitchen and he saw that there was a refrigerator blocking the back door, which is, I mean, just like a weird right. thing he noticed. Mm-hmm. Um, Cameron was just hysterical. Um, a police chaplain took him back to the fire truck and was trying to calm him down. He explained that his wife, Stacy, had gone out earlier that morning um, so she wasn't home okay. when the fire happened and that, um, he had been woken up by hearing one of his daughters yelling for him. So while he was talking to the chaplain, fireman came out from the house and had one of the girls, he tried to give her CPR. Um, and when Cameron saw that someone had gone inside and successfully came out, he tried to run in again. And they actually ended up having to handcuff him because he wouldn't stop trying to get inside. Right. Um, I mean, I don't know that I would do anything different. Like, right. I can't even... How heartbreaking. Right. I can't even imagine. No, you can't. Like, this is... Ugh. It's, oh hor- it's horrible. Like, this is this is terrible. It just reminds me of, like, this is us right now. Like, just, right. like, the fires are, like... It's, like, I just want to tell everybody, like, check your smoke detectors. Like, do it right now. Well, everyone will. Yeah, like, please, please, do it. please check do your it. smoke detectors. Um, so Cameron was taken to the hospital where that was when he was told that Amber, um, she had died of smoke inhalation, and um, both of the twins had died, too. All of them had died from smoke inhalation. Oh, oh my gosh. So this happened on December 23rd, 1991, and Corsicana is a small city that's about 55 miles north of Waco, um, and essentially it was a very small town, so everyone knew about it very quickly. Cameron and his wife, uh, who was 22, were very poor. Stacy worked at a bar. Cameron was an unemployed auto mechanic who had been caring for the kids. Um, and so the very, the small town just kind of like, you know, came up around them, right. to, you know, like we're it affected taking that whole town, it affected the whole town. They took up a collection to help them pay for the funerals and things like that. Oh my gosh. So fire and guess, fire investigators came to try to determine like what started the fire. Right. Um, Cameron told them that they could do this, um, he said, you know, I know we might not ever know all the answers, but I'd like to know why my babies were taken from me. Right. So Douglas Fogg, who was the assistant fire chief in Corsicana, conducted the initial inspection. And um, he was a former Navy guy, veteran, um, investigating arson or not arson, but fires was like his thing. Okay. Which obviously when you investigate fires, you're going to find cases of, of arson. Right. 
And so he had, um, he was joined by a man named Manuel Vasquez, who is no longer alive. And this was something like his 1200th fire investigation. Okay. So we're talking about people who, um, they're very, very, what's the word? Seasoned? Seasoned. Thank you. Like um, they know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. Well, because that's the thing is that I would imagine, I, it sounds like a nightmare to me. I mean, it, it's a nightmare situation, but like to investigate a fire, I wouldn't even know. Right. Like, what do you start. What do you even do? Right. What are you um, looking for? What is fire science? Right. I don't I, even know. I, yeah. I just feel like you'd have right. to do it to know what you're looking for. Right. And this is fire science like almost 30 years ago, too. Right. So yeah. I'm sure it's changed yeah. a lot. So Vasquez and Fogg, they visited uh, the Willingham's house four days after the fire. Following protocol, they moved. So you move from the least burnt areas to the most burnt areas okay. systematically. Um, and you just collect information. It's like any investigation. You're not deciding what happened yet. You're just collecting information right. on that initial run. So they slowly toured the perimeter of the house. They took notes and photographs. Um, Vasquez observed that there was just enough space to squeeze past that refrigerator that was blocking the exit. The air smelled of burnt rubber, melted wires, ash. Um, in the kitchen, Vasquez and Fogg saw only basically smoke and heat damage, a sign that okay. the fire didn't start there. Right. So they kept looking. So in the utility room, they noticed that there were pictures of what they thought was like the Grim Reaper. They just like made a note that they saw. They thought okay. there were weird pictures. Nothing's conclusive. They just write everything down so that right. they have a note of it. Right. So then in the master bedroom, that's where Amber's body was found. Most of the damage there was from smoke and heat, which also suggested that the fire didn't start there. Right. But it had started somewhere else. And so they kept going. Um, so they also noticed as they're walking along the hallway to still they're looking for the most intense place that was burned. They noticed that there was charring along the base of the walls. So because basically the thought with that is so gas becomes buoyant when it's heated. So flames burn upwards. Right. So they thought it was strange that like the baseboards would have been burnt like that and that there was like peculiar char patterns on the floor that were shaped like puddles. Okay. So he followed what they call the burn trailer, which is the, the path of the fire, which went from the hallway into the children's bedroom. And so the fire had burned through layers of carpeting and tile. The metal springs under the children's beds had turned white, which was a sign that intense heat had radiated beneath them. So, Seeing that the floor had some of the deepest burns, Vasquez decided that it was hotter than the ceiling because heat rises, right. which was, as he said, not normal. So basically because the burn pattern went from the children's bedroom into the corridor and then turned sharply right and went out the front door, um, they felt that that in conjunction with brown stains meant that accelerant had been right. used. So something had like that particular path was too perfect to just be a normal a pattern on its own. Right. So they were thinking something had been used to start that fire in that pattern. Um, so basically 
at this point, the investigators, they felt that they had a clear idea like of what had happened. They said that someone had poured liquid throughout the children's room, even under the beds, then along that hallway and the front door, creating what they called a fire barrier that would prevent anyone from escaping. And a prosecutor later suggested that the refrigerator in the kitchen was meant to block the back door. So they collected samples. They, I mean, tons and tons of samples. And by the time they finished their investigation, it was considered a triple homicide. And, of course, Cameron, the only person besides the girls who had been at the house at the time, was the prime suspect. Right. So investigators went through the neighborhood interviewing people. Um, Most of the people initially said that uh, Cameron was devastated by the fire. You know, they're talking about having to handcuff him so he doesn't go in there, that he's just outside yelling. But... More and more, t- like as more time went on. Well, like you said, it's a small town, so news yeah. travels fast. People and- talk. Yeah. So by the time they start canvassing and asking questions, Diane, the neighbor, okay, um, and it was her younger daughter who had originally seen the fire. Um, she kind of changed her story and said that she had not actually seen Willingham try to enter the house until after the authorities arrived. Okay. As if he was like faking it. Okay. And when the windows exploded out, he seemed preoccupied with his car, which he moved down the driveway. Another neighbor said that when Cameron cried out for his babies, that it, it wasn't real, basically. Okay. Um, so the police. So interesting. Right. I don't know how to feel yet. All of this is changing. Oh, right. Yeah. So like the power of suggestion. Right. So it's a tiny town. Yeah. It comes out that this is not a fire that was set by mistake. Right. And obviously who's suspect number one. And then all of a sudden he's not a nice guy. He was, that's not what he was doing. Testimony is like totally flips. Right. So the police basically, they began profiling him as kind of this, you know, they went back. And so a lot of the pictures in the house, like I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. they were like of bands, like metal bands, okay. like Led Zeppelin. And, oh you know, there was this and real... In the 90s, there was like... The cult hysteria. panic. Yes. Over... I mean, I think like satanic panic happened uh-huh. in the 80s. Yes. But the 90s yes. was still... That was like a huge time for... Yes. For people being like metal is directly... Metal music and hardcore music is directly related to... Yes homicidal ideation and yes so this was like a huge part of it um he grew up poor he was from like kind of a half military family half poor family mm-hmm. he was into so cars he's a, redneck. he's a little bit of you know a redneck he's you can into look metal at music like i'm better than him yes exactly um which would be wrong but I'm right just saying but it's it was easy to do yeah um and his wife stacy um she also kind of had that troubled background um her mother had been killed when she was four by her stepfather um there were rumors that cameron was not faithful to his wife 
I mean, just the rumors it were all flying. Starts to come there out. was this explosion of, right. you know, originally these were sweet people who love their kids, and now they're like metal cultists, poor rednecks, right. all the things. So the fire happened on December 23rd, and on December 31st, the police brought Cameron in for questioning. Um, the fire investigators, Fogg and Vasquez, were there, along with um, Jimmy Hensley, who was, this was his first arson case. He was a police officer. This was his first okay. arson case. Um, Cameron said that Stacy had left that morning. He had been taking care of the kids. Um, the children's room... Uh, the twins had a safety gate across the doorway, which the older daughter who was two could climb over, but not the twins. So he and his wife would let the twins nap on the floor after they had their bottles. If they wanted Amber was at this time still in bed. So he went back to his room to sleep. And then the next thing he heard was daddy, daddy. The house was already full of smoke. He said that he got up, felt around the floor, put that, put, um, clothes on and then he couldn't hear anything else again but he was yelling you know leave mm -hmm. the house leave the house he said that he never sensed that amber was in his room which is where her body was found maybe she had you know she'd already passed out from the smoke right. like she came he, to get him and she right she was already it. sick and it was already yeah um so basically he felt he when he stood up like the room was so on fire that like his hair caught on fire. Oh, so he was like rolling around on the ground. He was looking for her. He couldn't find her. And then he started to feel himself passing out. So he just ran out, got out the front doors right. as soon as he could, um, which is when he started yelling and then he saw the neighbor and then she called whatever. So, they asked him if he knew how the fire started. He said he wasn't sure, but he thought it might have started in the children's room since that's where he first saw the flames. Um, and here's the thing. So, you know, those old space heaters we all mm -hmm. used to have in our houses in the yeah. 90s. So they had three space heaters and one of them was in the children's room. He said that he taught Amber not to play with it. Um, but he had a feeling that maybe that might have been where it started because the little girls, the littler ones like to play with it. Maybe like a blanket had caught it on fire. Um, Vasquez, one of the arson guys later testified that when he had checked the heater four days after the fire, that it was in the off position, but we don't know. So anyway, okay. Um, they asked him whether someone might have a motive to like hurt his family. He said he couldn't think of anyone. Um, he said, I just don't understand why anybody would take them. And, you know, he admitted that eventually, like sometimes he and Stacy would be in fights, but they would, they didn't, the kids are what brought them together right. and neither one of them could live without the kids. Um, he said, you know, I wish, I wish Amber hadn't woke me up. Like essentially I wish right. I'd been left in the fire too. Right. Yeah. Um, during the interrogation before it was over, Vasquez or Fogg, sorry, Vasquez asked Cameron a question that might seem random, but it wasn't. He said, did you put on shoes before you left the house? Cameron said no. Um, 
And Vasquez said, you walked out this way and like pointed to a map of the house. Cameron said, yes, um, which basically made Vasquez sure that well, that Cameron had killed them because if the floor had been soaked with the liquid accelerant and the fire had burned down low as they thought, then there's no way Cameron could not have run out of the house the way he described it without badly burning his feet and his feet right. weren't burnt. Um, but he insisted that he didn't have to jump through any flames and they thought that was impossible. But the problem was there was still like no clear motive Right. Like, even if they were, like, these horrible people, like, everyone right. was saying, like, it just wasn't possible. Right. So, there were no life insurance policies. I mean, I mean, they did well, have... Even, like, family annihilator will usually... I mean, it's the whole family. Like, that sounds really dark, and it is. Right. But generally, you're not looking to let... Right. A, one person of your family leave... No. ...in the morning, and then... No. I mean, I don't know, but there are, there are like messed up people will use their kids to, as leverage in certain ways, yep. in a lot of ways. And I mean, right. I mean, so, I mean, ultimately the police decided that Cameron was just a man without a conscience, total right. psychopath, um, that he had done this, didn't really need a reason he was called a sociopath. Um, they claimed that he just didn't want his kids anymore. And uh, just thought that the local district attorney said the children were interfering with his beer drinking and dart throwing. So on January 8th, it sounds like a lot of testimony came together to create <laughs> right. this profile of him. Definitely that... nobody thought he was innocent at this point, And they weren't even trying to pretend that right. they didn't that they were going to give him due process. So on January 8th, um, while he was in the car with his wife, SWAT teams came, surrounded them, and arrested him. He was charged with murder, um, and because there were multiple victims, he was up for the death penalty because yeah. that's how it works in Texas. Yep. Don't mess with Texas. Don't. Um. But essentially at that time was kind of when the tide was turning towards the death penalty. So like one of the um, the prosecutors who wanted to be a judge was saying, you know, the death penalty doesn't work. Um, so did the was the wife questioned at all? Oh, we'll get to the wife. OK, OK. <laughs> um, Cameron couldn't afford uh, couldn't afford lawyers, of so not. no, of course not. So he was assigned to who can no one can afford a lawyer, <laughs> no one who can afford a lawyer. Um, he was assigned to by the state, David Martin and Robert Dunn, um, and so not long after his arrest, uh, uh, the police got a message from a prison inmate named Johnny Webb, who was in the same jail as Cameron. Webb said that Cameron had confessed to him that he he took, quote, some kind of lighter fluid, squirting it around the walls and the floor and set a fire. So at this point, the case against Cameron was just considered airtight. So uh, several of Stacy's relatives. Really, the testimony of a convicted. Yeah. yeah. And P.S., this guy was given 
time off of his sentence. Oh, of course he was. Yeah, um, of course. And something else. I forget what. And he gave them what? Information that he could easily ascertain from newspapers right. and yeah. watching TV. He got a deal. Yeah. I mean, he, he, got, gave he got a them, deal. He gave, he gave them, them what they wanted. He gave them like the most obvious, easy yes. way to commit arson. Yes. No specific. Nope. Deta- yeah. Okay. Nope. I mean, I'm not saying like, I don't know the story in its entirety yep. yet. So. Yep. But it just seems, it seems like they want him to be. Yep. Guilty. So even, even his lawyers believed that he was guilty. So, um, <laughs> I know. Jackson is the prosecutor and. I mean, I guess if I was in that position though, like. I don't know. I I don't know because it gets because it, it gets worse. Right. Like this is why this the case is so fascinating because at this point in the story you're like, while well, the evidence is against him, we'll just wait. <laughs> um. So, basically, the Jackson, um, the prosecutor, went to Cameron's attorneys with an offer. He said if Cameron pleaded guilty, the state would give him a life sentence instead of the death penalty, but he had to plead guilty. Cameron's lawyers who thought he was guilty were pretty happy with that. Right. Um, And one of the lawyers said, everyone thinks defense lawyers must believe their clients are innocent, but that's seldom true. Most of the, most of the time they're guilty. Yeah, I'm sure. So they advised him to take the offer, but he wouldn't do it. The lawyers asked Cameron's dad and stepmom to convince him to do it. And so they went to jail to try to convince him, um, though his father didn't believe. Wait, sh- no, what, wait, who tried to convince him? The Cameron's lawyers asked his mom, his mom and stepdad to go convince him to plead guilty because he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't plead guilty because he's like, I'm not guilty. I'm so not pleading guilty. His par- so his parents also think. Well, his it. so his or parents went, but his father, his father didn't believe that he should plead guilty if he was innocent. But his stepmother asked him to take the deal because I she was like, I just want him to stay alive. Right. Like she just wanted him. Right yeah. She was like, she just wanted him to avoid the death penalty. So she was like, just take it. And his dad was like, if you're not guilty, don't plead guilty. So they weren't on the same page. Right. But Cameron said, I ain't going to plead to something I didn't do, especially killing my own kids. It w- and that was his final decision. Right. Um, no. And certain, like he already expressed that he wished he had died. Right. Like I, at this point, he's probably like, I'd rather right. put me to right. death. I'm not going to lie forever and say I killed my kids. Right. When I didn't. Right. Um, Cameron's refusal to accept the deal, basically in the eyes of the prosecution, just, confirmed what they already believed about him which is that he was totally this unrepentant killer so he was right and just saying again guilty people and innocent people unfortunately say the same thing the same thing a lot of the time time. yes (laughs) so in august of 92 the trial started in downtown corsicana jackson and his team of prosecutors they had witnesses including johnny webb so they tried him locally yeah. And was the jury like a selection of people uh, from outside of the I really doubt it. I don't know. Okay. But I really doubt it. Okay. Um Johnny Webb, the the jailhouse informant who got a deal 
and the neighbors, the Barbies, um, the crux. So those were the witnesses that some of the witnesses that came forward. And the state's the state's case, though, really was hung around the fire investigation okay. by Vasquez and Fogg. So Vasquez detailed what he called more than 20 indicators of arson. And one of the prosecutors was like, do you have any opinion as to who started the fire? And he said, yes, he believed it was Cameron. And the prosecutor indicate why he thought it was the prosecutor asked Vasquez what he thought the intent was. And he said to kill the little girls, which is just a weird. Well, so other than motive, like, do they have any way to? Well, yeah, like they're interested in what maybe the motive would be. But do they have any evidence that would other than just that he was there? No. Okay. So the defense in in most cases. It would be would appear to be pretty airtight. The person they might right, be right, right. And know. the defense tried to find a fire expert to counter those right. investigators' testimony, um, but the one that they contacted agreed with the prosecution. Oh, so so the, really, whatever happened, it really just yeah, yeah. Thank so, goodness God is sovereign. I know. Because this, does this make you so nervous? Yeah. No, I mean, I know people that, yeah, just wrong. Like the whole, the whole situation, like right. it just looked like it was them. Right. I know. And the, it wasn't, but it just looks like it. just like looks it. like it. I know. Oh, gosh. Um, Thank God. So the only witness that the defense presented was um, the Willingham's babysitter who just didn't believe that Cameron could have killed his kids. Um, and the trial ended after two days. So during his closing, I know two days, death penalty case, two days during his closing arguments, Jackson, the prosecutor said that the puddle configurations and poor patterns were Willingham's inadvertent quote, confession burned into the floor, showing a Bible that had been salvaged from the fire. Jackson paraphrased, uh, a verse out of Matthew about who who shall whosoever shall harm one of my children, it's better for a millstone to be hung around his neck. So the jury, are you ready for this? The jury was out for barely one hour before returning with a oh unanimous gosh. guilty verdict. As Vasquez put it, the fire does not lie. Well, you're right. It's not. Yep. Yep. It's not an eyewitness testimony. It's a piece of evidence, but. Yep. (laughs) So, um, he goes to jail. He goes to death row. And so, um, a woman who was, so this is, now he's in jail. And there's this woman, this school teacher, um, who basically, I guess there's some program where you can, there was a program that was really popular in the 90s. You know, the whole purpose of like the prison system now is to like rehabilitate, right? right? So the focus is on rehabilitating the criminal. And so this woman became a part of this program where you could be basically a pen pal Uh to someone on death row and just like try to be encouraging or whatever. And so... um. Not long after she volunteered to be a pen pal for an inmate, for an inmate, um, 
she got a letter from Cameron and um, she basically did just straight up ask him, like, why did you kill your kids? Like, what was your what was your motive? And he said, um, I do not talk about it much anymore. And it's still a very powerfully emotional pain inside my being. He admitted that he had been a terrible husband, um, which was something he regretted, but that he loved his children and he would never have hurt them. Fatherhood, he said, had changed him. He stopped being a hoodlum and settled down and became a man. Um, Three months before the fire, he and Stacy, who had never married, they got married at a small ceremony. He said that the prosecution had seized upon incidents from his past and from the day of the fire to create a portrait of a demon um, as the prosecutor referred right. to him. And, um, you know, so stuff like he had moved his car during the fire because he was afraid that it was going to explode by the house, right. the heat and the fire and right. further, you know, threatening the children. And so all these things had kind of been twisted right. is what he's saying. And so, well, and I get that it looks weird, but where you keep your fridge is not an indicator of, whether or not you're going to hurt not you're, somebody. Right. Right. It's re- I mean, it's really not. And if if he really was a little bit of a redneck. Maybe. Right. Like, who knows? Who knows? But it's not an indicator. I of walked morality. into the studio today and there was like a new fridge out of nowhere. Just sitting like <laughs> two fridges. Right. Side Is by something side. weird going on? I don't know. They can't in and of themselves. I don't know. Right. Just... Right. So, um, the lady, the pen pal, I can't remember her first name. Her last name is Gilbert. So I'm just going to call okay. her Gilbert. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, she was unsure what to make of the story. And so she started talking to people who were involved in the case. And her friends were like, what are you doing? Like, she was like right. a school teacher. And all of a sudden, she's like a pen pal to this yeah. inmate. And she's like talking to his friends. Um and so one morning when Cameron's parents came to visit him, she arranged to see his parents first at a, at a coffee shop nearby. And um, basically, as they drank coffee, they just they told her how grateful they were that someone had finally taken an interest in his case. Um, Jean said that, you know, his son, despite his flaws, was not a killer. And she said the um, Cameron's mom said, uh, that she had spoken on the phone with him the night before the fire and that they were coming up two days later because it was going to be Christmas Eve and that, um, you know, everything was normal. He put Amber on the phone and, you know, she's, she was like, if something had been bothering him, I would have known. Well, and I'm sorry, but there's no just, there's no sociopath that just appears. Right. Out of nowhere. Right. That kills their kids a few days before Christmas. No. Like that's not enough of a motive. No. Um, Oh, and then he just became unfeeling and horrible. Right. All of a sudden the kids that he stayed home and cared for, like he doesn't care about, like that's not what's happening. It's not a, regardless of whether he did it or not, it's still not enough. Right. It's not enough. To put him to death. Yeah. Right. So Gilbert just, she just kept looking around. Um, Eventually, she went to Corsicana and she wanted to interview Stacy, the wife. 
um, who had agreed to an interview with her. Were they still married or did they? I um, Did they not stay together? My notes might say. I have so many notes here. It's okay. We'll find out. I don't. They they aren't. They they are not anymore. Okay. I mean. Well, yeah. Even before he was put to death. Okay. So at some point. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, Stacy said that nothing weird had happened before the fire. They hadn't been fighting. They were getting ready for Christmas. Um, even though Vasquez, the arson expert, had said that the space heater was off, Stacy was sure that, at least on the day of the incident, when it had been cold, that it had been on. She said, I remember turning it down. I always thought oh my, like, could Amber put something in there? And more than once she had caught Amber putting things too close to it. Right. Um, Cameron had often not treated her well. And after his incarceration, she had left him. Okay. okay. So she did. Okay. So she went to jail. So he went to jail and she divorced him. But she, she didn't think he was. She said, guilty. I don't, I don't think he did it. Okay. Um. So anyway, you just have all this stuff stacked against him that he's a sociopath that like all of this stuff say there were satanic activities and he listens to Led Zeppelin and just all this stuff. So after talking to uh, Stacy Gilbert went to talk to the jailhouse informant who was in a different part of Texas and she wrote to him and asked if they could meet in person and, um, Basically, he agreed, and Gilbert later said that she thought that he seemed paranoid and um, that during Cameron's trial, he had actually disclosed that he had PTSD and that um, he had some other mental illnesses going on, and some of the stuff he pleaded guilty to, he never actually did, and he, like, should have known. Like, he was just a really interesting person okay but basically because he claimed that he heard cameron say that he had intentionally um set the fire you know he basically got out of jail right because he said that um so cameron you know he was during his first years on death row he was begging his lawyer to save him he was like you can't imagine what it's like in here um he begged gilbert you know try to try to keep them from killing me. He went through appeal after appeal after appeal. Right. And so when he was entering his final stage, his stage of appeals, cause you can only, appeal you can only have so many, so many times he well, was. And then also evidence has just degraded and degraded and yes. degraded with every appeal you make. And yes. so it's not likely that. Yes. He was pretty much at this point, the lawyers were like kind of done with him and he was right. ever more reliant on Gilbert to investigate the case. Um, he appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, but in December 2003, it had been declined. Um, and then he soon got a court order after that saying that, you know, the director of the Department of Justice has hereby stated um, that you will be executed on such and such a day at this time um and it was february 17th 2004 was going to be his execution okay. date so all he could do after that was appeal to the governor of texas which was rick perry at the time and that didn't work <clears throat> um 
which is when someone very important to the case comes in. His name is Dr. Gerald Hurst. He was an acclaimed scientist and fire investigator, and he got a file describing all the evidence of arson in in Cameron's case. And Gilbert basically found this guy and was like, hey, please look at this. Like, right. please look at all of this information. And he agreed to look at it pro bono. Um, and then he got all the documents that he needed. Um, Hearst made a lot of money doing this and he was, they called him like just, he was the man for this. Right. He was kind of like a, a prodigy in this world. Okay. Um, and so basically, uh, Hearst, he also had patents. Like he was, he wasn't a little bit of everything. Um, and he basically received the files on Cameron's case only a few weeks before he was scheduled to be executed. And as he looked through them, um, a statement by Vasquez, the fire marshal arsonist guy, jumped out at him. Vasquez had testified that of roughly 1,200 to 1,500 fires he had investigated, most all of them were arson. And this was an oddly high estimate um, because arson is only found in 50% of cases. Hearst was also struck by Vasquez's claim that the uh, blaze at the house had burned fast and hot because of liquid accelerant. The notion that a flammable or combustible liquid caused flames to reach higher temperatures had re- been repeated in court by arson, you know, people for decades. Yet the theory was it was bunk and it had already been proven to be bunk because experiments had proved that wood and gasoline fueled fires burn at essentially the same temperature. Okay. So Vasquez and, and Fogg had cited as proof of arson the fact that the front door's aluminum threshold had melted. The only thing that can cause that to react is an accelerant, Vasquez, Vasquez had said at the time, but Hearst was like, well, that's not true. Another piece of evidence that uh, condemned Cameron was the glass that Vasquez had attributed to rapid heating. So the reason why it blew out right. was rapid heating. But in November of 91, a team of fire investigators had expected 50 houses in Oakland, California, which had been ravaged by the brush fires in 1991. Okay. In a dozen houses, the investigators discovered that same kind of glass, even though a liquid accelerant had right. not been used. It was a wildfire. It was a wildfire. Right. So on February 17th, the day that Cameron was set to die, uh, you know, that his family, his parents came and visited him. And um, I guess like in that final like time with him, he looked around and he was like, where's Gilbert? Like she was the one who right. got Hearst on the case and she was the one really like his lawyers and everyone, they'd all kind of left him. Right. And like she was the this like school teacher was like had been the last she one was standing the that was just she was there and yeah. trying for years. And um, he looked around and he was like, well, where's Gilbert? And she wasn't there. Um, it's really sad. Gilbert had, um, she'd been driving home from a store when another car ran a red light and hit her. And um, Cameron used to tell her to stay in her kitchen for a day uh, to comprehend what it was like to be confined in prison. But she had always found an excuse not to do it. And all of a sudden, she was paralyzed from the neck down. Oh, my gosh. So while she was in the intensive care unit, she tried to get a message to Cameron, but obviously it, it didn't go through. And so Gilbert's daughter la- later read her a letter that Cameron had sent her telling her how much he had grown to love her. Like he had written poems for her and he just 
loved her so much. Gilbert spent years in, uh, you know, rehab, and she slowly regained motion in her arms and upper body, although I think she's in a wheelchair now for the rest of her life. Um, you know, she later said, I, at that time, I thought I was saving Willingham, and I realized then that he was saving me, giving me the strength to get through this. I know I will one day walk again, and I know it is because Willingham showed me the kind of courage it takes to survive. Isn't that terrible? Oh, gosh. I know. So, um, so yeah, Willingham so just kind of like, well, had to go like that was, I mean, he was executed. So any, he was executed. Yeah. Anything that anyone else could have contributed. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. So did like, did the case close with him being executed or, well, where did they, this is what's interesting is Willingham. So he asked that his parents and his family not be in the gallery right. while he was, right. you know. Um, and the really interesting thing to me is that, so he was, his heart stopped at 6.20 p.m. on February 17th, 2004. And on his death certificate, the cause was listed as homicide. That just has oh. always stuck with me. Oh, gosh. Wow. Um, so the Innocence Project is on this. And they okay. have been trying to clear his name right. for years and years and years. And for me, it, it's hard. It's hard to say um, because you have the two, you have the, the arson investigators who have completely different. And I, I right. didn't go through all the details. I could keep going on. Right. Just you have this arson investigator who's like the best in the business saying, no, the evidence that you guys used to put him to death was based on bad science. It's not true. Right. Um, so even if he had done it, they really you have, didn't yeah. have enough. You to... have these changing pictures of of who he was. So all the stuff I told you was essentially straight from the New Yorker article that I first read that got me interested in the right. case. Um, but in other articles that I've read who find think he's guilty... I would say the author of this article doesn't believe he's guilty right. as much as it tries to remain. Right. Um, you can't. I think the author of this article does not believe he's guilty. Uh, I've read other articles who say that his last words were him like cursing out his ex-wife, Stacy. That's not in a lot of articles and a lot of okay. articles. It's like, no, his last words were, I love my babies. So it's just crazy because it, it depends on which side of the glass you look through. Right. Like if you listen to half of the people involved in this case, he was this crazy well, that's the problem, isn't it? Yes. Like, yes, there's no, there's no neutral observance of no. evidence. It's just how, which side makes you feel yeah. the most. Yeah. Uh, like right. Either way towards which right. side pushes you towards innocent or guilt. Right. Innocence or guilt. The best. Right. And so, I'll tell you my two obvious biases. One bias I have is that um, the Innocence Project exists to, they say they exist essentially to um, clear people's names. Right or wrong, yeah. Who, who have been, you know, put to death, who shouldn't have been, or people who are on death row and get them out. Um, but their underlying presupposition is that the death penalty is always wrong. And right. I disagree with yeah. them on that. Right. So I have this kind of like, you guys are probably wrong type of feeling about them. But my other problem is that um, 
I, because I do believe in the death penalty as it's described in scripture, this was not an unjust, this was not a just death penalty. Right. right. Um, especially because I don't believe he was actually given due process. He was yeah. essentially uh, proven guilty by public opinion before yeah. he walked in there. Um, and I just, I don't know that the case was handled rightly. And then you have unreliable witnesses who are changing their stories. Right. So can you really put a man to death right. based on witnesses who right. who are changing their story? Like, I don't know if that's a biblical... Right. I would say that's not a biblical... Right. Well, um, like, the, this, the comments that I've made throughout you telling this story would maybe indicate that I'm assuming his innocence. But that's what you're supposed to do. Right. Until you can prove to me... Correct. So, so that's the thing, is we've taken this idea that, like... Well, but we're pretty sure he's guilty. So we need to make sure he gets prosecuted. Like right. We need to make sure he gets punished. Right. But the, the whole point of the law is to figure out if someone is guilty or innocent. And and so it for the world, that seems very hopeless. For the Christian, we know that whether someone is is convicted of something or not, they will. Right. The, there is justice. Yep. So my my commentary thus far has basically just been they don't have enough to put no, him to death. They did not have him. It enough. doesn't matter no. if he did it or not. No. I mean, it does. But in this specific little area, like it doesn't. Right. If you don't have enough, then you don't have enough. No. He's supposed to be innocent until he's guilty. No. So basically all they had was they... The, they thought he was a they hick. Thought, they thought he was a hick, and there they thought there was accelerant in the house. Right. Evidence proves that all the stuff they were saying that points to this being an arson case doesn't actually point to it being an arson case. Right. And, and being so, a hick does not make you a bad person. Right. It doesn't make you any more likely. Right. Being a, being a sociopath doesn't make you any more likely to hurt someone. Right. Would you believe that statistic? Uh, right. It really doesn't. I know. I, believe, really I do believe it. It really doesn't at all. I know. So, he was just tried by the court of public opinion before it ever happened. And yeah, I just think it's really, I think it's really sad. Even though I am pro death penalty, I am pro <laughs> due, due process. process. Yep. And I don't think that he received due process and we'll never know. I mean, right. we'll just never know. Um if he did it or not. Right. And so it's just, it's heartbreaking all around. And it's really something to think about. Um, I think a lot of us, especially conservative Christians, um, we can just kind of like, we hear someone was put to death and all we kind of buck up against is, oh, all these, you know, soft hearted liberals, they're just so against the death penalty. Right. But it's like, it's not, are you pro or against death penalty? Because if due process exists and someone is legitimately tried or not legitimately tried, that's like the first step. Because the, the, the Bible is for appropriate yes. death penalty. It's yes. not just for like, whatever. We think you did people. it. So we're going to stone yeah. you. Yeah. That's not how it works. No, <laughs> it's just no. not how it works. Nope. And the, it was, it was God, ungodly. God abhors. Yeah. Homicide. Yes. It's a marring of the image. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's not, if, if someone who hasn't been given due process is put to death, that's not right. A win. No. 
So I feel like I need to talk about something not depressing right now. And I, I just don't have anything. <laughs> I just don't. What, what do I even say? Well, so like there is justice. Right. There is in the end. There always is. That's the only way you can handle this kind of stuff. That right. It's the, the only way out of like all of this brokenness in the world is right. knowing that there is justice in the right. end. Yeah. I mean, <sighs> that's, that's a good word, it, girl. Yeah. These, these horrible things happen way more likely. And I mean, just, just consider even the times that they aren't happening, like God's common grace that we right. just don't even think, I don't think we understand always like how bad we could be. Right. Yeah. And we're just not like, because he has shown us so much common grace, so much restraint. He puts like, on so us. much. I don't think we realize. Lord for oh, it. Yeah, I know we should like, thank God. Yeah. I don't mean that in a right derogatory way. Right. I really mean that. Not in the cursing <laughs> way. Like we are thankful to God for that. Right. <sighs> okay. Well, um, do you want to tell us a story next week? Yes. Okay. Is it also going to be an unsolved mystery? It's an unsolved mystery, but mine has a different ending. Is there going to be any happiness? Should we yes. figure out? Okay. Yes. Yes, There's there happiness. Is. Okay. There's no death in mine. Oh, or good. Fire oh. Or anything horrible. Thank goodness. <laughs> I'm so happy for that. <laughs> All, right. All right, you guys. Um, don't forget to hit us up on Patreon. Leave us a voicemail if you want at 470-465-0475. Oh, no. <laughs> Mm, just check Instagram and um <laughs> and um we'll I don't even know. We'll um <laughs> we will see you guys next week. See ya. <laughs> <laughs>